Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Drew Ramsey is a psychiatrist, author, and a farmer. He's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, offering treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness concerns. He's also the author of three books, including the bestseller, Fifty Shades of Kale. Drew is a clear voice in the mental health conversation and one of psychiatry's leading proponents of using nutritional interventions. Drew, welcome. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. So you're a psychiatrist, but not the kind that most people are used to. The kind I like. Oh, well, that's good. I hope I hope that I hope I, I represent what psychiatry will be to most people, which is just a a physician who cares about mental health. I mean I think that's So we're only that simple. I mean <laughs> Well, I'm not sure how you distinguish me, but um, uh, you know, I'm a traditional doc in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I see real MD. You got MDs, MDs at the, the back of the name, real the doctor. MD. Yep. So I did medical school out at Indiana University, and then came out here to Columbia, where I completed my residency in adult psychiatry, and, and I see patients from you know all kinds of different uh, come in with all kinds of different concerns. But um, yeah, I, I focus on mental health. But I guess I have a little twist. I mean, I do prescribe a lot of food, and um, and I've, I've really pushed the field to think and consider um, more of what we can offer the public in terms of prevention, in terms of those ways that food and exercise are really very clear in the data that affect things like anxiety and depression. That, you know, I think part of what I'm excited about in the wellness movement is we're talking about that for the right. first time in a long time. And so I think psychiatry has a real obligation to step up and use all the science we have to really help help people and help the population think about their mental health and their brain health. So even though I love Columbia, I'm a Columbia grad, although I have no uh, advanced degrees, I'm guessing that in the residency, food was not in the syllabus. So how did, how did this interest come? Well, food wasn't in the syllabus. I'm proud to report it is a little bit now. Um, they've been Thanks really, to someone here. You know, well, they've, they've given me a little bit of time, and uh, you know, they, they like to tease me about my... They make a lot of kale jokes. Psychiatrists like to make kale jokes about me, but um, I grew up on a farm, and so food's always been a big part of my life. Uh, growing it was a big part of my sort of family's culture. They moved out to Indiana when I was, gosh, six years old. We moved into a big farm. And my parents really didn't know a lot about what they were doing, but one of the real motivations was to grow a lot of our food. They were part of that really early organic movement. They had that like original uh, Rodale book on organic farming. <laughs> and uh, and so because of that, food uh, personally was a really a focus of um, just my wellness. I mean, I was an athlete in college. I, I was a low-fat vegetarian for a long time, really thinking that was the way to, to keep my health up. Um, always, I've always done sports. And, and, you know, and I think nutrition is part of any athlete's life. And so I went to, you know, medical school and, and, you know, there's not a lot of vegetarians in medical school and that sort of sets you apart in some, some way. And same thing in residency, you're considered really healthy. And it was just interesting that we didn't talk to patients about that stuff and, and in mental health in general, you know, we kind of shy away from talking too much about ourselves. And, and so it just struck me, it was left out of the conversation with so many people. 
and I just didn't know what they were eating. I didn't know their wellness regimen. I didn't know how they thought about that stuff. And it just struck me as that was so important to me personally. And then the healthiest people I knew and, and looked up to, that's the stuff that they were thinking about. And I just wondered, you know, if I'm here to help my patients have the best mental health possible, I've, I've got to include this. And, and, and then realized now that we have to include it, we have to include it in a helpful way. I can't just say like, hey, you ought to eat healthy, eat more fish. Like that, that doesn't help people change their behavior. So when did you decide in your practice, like, okay, like I'm going to talk to people, I'm going to prescribe medication and I'm going to start experimenting with prescribing food. You know, it, it started with just asking patients. I mean, being a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist, you're with patients all the time. And so, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, what is it? It's uh, Thursday. I've seen probably 25, 30 hours of, of clinical time already this week. And I love that because you sit with people and and what, where, where their mind leads you really dictates a lot about the therapy. And you learn so much about how we're different. You learn so much about how people are the same. And, and so I just, um, I guess it was the omega-3 data. The omega-3 data started coming out really showing that there was something that, that around seafood and fish and the long-chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA, that had a data signal around depression. And, and it was one of those moments I had where like, well, I was like, well, I wonder where those special fats come from. So and, low omega-3, I'm assuming. Uh, Not good. Or high omega-3 for depression. Yeah, in general, low. So if you look around the sort of population studies, populations that eat less seafood tend to have mm -hmm. more depression. And then uh, the studies started coming out really looking specifically at, at uh, in prospective epidemiological trials. So looking at big populations over time and seeing the most powerful studies were how closely individuals followed the Mediterranean diet and then what their risk of depression was over the next four or five years. And so as that data started to come out, you wonder, like, where do these fats come from? You realize, hey, these come from seafood, obviously. And and we're thinking, you know, med in medicine, you think about, like, what you're going to prescribe. You think about fish oil pills. You know, and fish is a much more interesting compound than fish oil. And so uh, that just kind of led into more conversation, realizing, gosh, a lot of my patients aren't eating seafood. And then thinking just kind of what would be the optimal diet to prescribe to mental health patients. And just realizing there wasn't much out there and getting really curious and then partnering up um, for my first book, The Happiness Diet, really trying to just dive into the data and ask that, answer that question. If you're going to feed the brain, if you're going to ask people what is the diet that, and, and what are the foods, most importantly, that are most important for us to prevent mental health concerns, and most important, if we have a mental health concern to eat, like what would those foods be? So what are they? Well, so we've learned a lot. That was a long time ago. And so since then, um, a lot of data has come out. I mean, back then, fermented foods were kind of like a new thing. The microbiome wasn't a buzzword. Um, we didn't have two randomized clinical trials about depression in the Mediterranean diet. And, and so I think when we think, like, what are the foods, I think I try and take a step back with patients. And really, uh, we in our clinic operate from a stance that people do not have a good relationship with food. Even people in the wellness movement, food has become something that we hate, something we all these, as I tell my children, strong words. <laughs> That food has become something that we have uh, a lot of fetishism about, but but having a really joyous relationship with food is something we see that's missing in a lot of folks. Just really enjoying how you nourish yourself and the full meaning of that word. And, and so as we've tried to help individuals with that and speak with folks about that, certain food categories come out that just in general a lot of people struggle with. Um, may, maybe a lot of folks listening are great with their leafy green game. Uh, this might be a special population, but a lot of Americans really struggle with simple things like leafy greens and plants. Uh, seafood is a big category that you know, the average American eats 14 pounds of seafood per person per year, which is very, very low. 
and, and see if it's we can... It's like a big lobster. It's like a big... <laughs> it's like you go to like some big lobster place in Maine. They're like, oh, the 14-pound the, the, the lobster. Four, I'm done for the year. I'm out. <laughs> and then so. like they ring the bell, they come out, you know, everyone... <laughs> Exactly. And then you start vomiting when you eat that. Big That's lobster, a lot of lobster. That's yeah. a lot of lobster. We want people to spread. Speaking it out. of hyperbole, I think everyone knows that. But and yeah. I wouldn't say lobsters are favorite seafood to eat. We oh, want people yeah. to eat those more um, high omega three fat uh, fish, the, the wild salmon everybody knows about, but also the small fish, the anchovies, uh, and sardines, and, and probably the top food we, uh, I recommend clinically end up being the bivalves, the mussels, clams, and oysters, which surprises people because again this. It's a distorted notion that's really developed about food for a lot of people. That you know, bivalves are these gross filter feeders, and it's like actually they're the most nutrient dense piece of meat you can eat on the planet. Period. Like mm. no debate about that. And and so, you know, when asked which foods, I think we try and work with food categories like that, and we try and work with specific foods in terms of okay, food category of bivalves, mussel clams, and oysters. Like, how do those fit into your life? You hate them, you love them, you don't eat them, you want to try them. And to work you're with, ma- you're making people around the world. Uh, you're getting them excited about happy hour in certain seafood restaurants. That, trying to, right? Yeah, I mean, you've never heard uh, doctors <laughs> celebrate the merits of clam chowder and oysters on the half shell, but that's that's. Uh, I guess that's that's exactly what I want to try and help people understand is really really good for your brain, and then a lot of as to why. And so, what about specific leafy greens? I'm always curious. So, We've had some controversy. So, like Dave Asprey, like. Does yeah. not like kale. I know you have a strong opinion on kale, so we'll put that aside. But I mean, Dave cannot like kale. That's fine. I think it's. Uh, but the question is whether Dave likes leafy greens because yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, it's absolutely. A, it's a great example of uh, you know I, I've had a lot of fun with the kale movement and and uh, writing Fifty Shades of Kale and helping launch National Kale Day. Uh, I've eaten a lot of kale, and, and I've also seen what happens when we fetishize a food like kale and sat through the kale backlash. Right before we were launching National Kale Day, there was this big piece that came out how kale is actually radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so you see that happen where you're working you know, pretty hard to help people think about a food that's really nutrient-dense and healthy and use that as a model of what are foods that are really good for our health. And, you know, and then you see people just you know, kind of somehow want to fight against that, like, oh, it's all about kale. It's like, you know what, if you love collard greens, go to town. Like arugula, great. My favorite green right now are sunflower sprouts. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be about kale, uh, it, but leafy greens are great because they're really nutrient-dense. They're you know, mostly water, vitamins, miser- minerals, a little bit of fiber, and almost no calories. They're great <clears throat> for the gut. They're packed with you know, lots of the nutrients that our brain and body needs, like vitamin B9, folate. You do that, you sure. do that for all kinds of mental functions. Um, so, and lots of phytonutrients, lots of these plant-based compounds that increasingly we understand People think about them as antioxidants, and that's not, in my understanding, really how they work in the body. They actually are, I think about them much more as signaling molecules, that your body responds to them, your cells change their um, kind of genetic expression based on eating more phytonutrients. And so, you've, so you've got leafy greens. Leafy greens, rainbow. You got, you got fish. What's next? Rainbow vegetables. I'm a big fan of rainbow vegetables. Okay. And, and you know, Eat Your Colors is a great public health campaign, again, for those phytonutrients, different phytonutrients, a different color. Um, pretty big on nuts and seeds. Again, just great snack. I Meet mean, a lot of people love the crunch. Oh, you have to. I love the crunch. So love the can snack. You, can you rank your nuts for me? Um, I, I can't. I can't. Uh, let's see here. I am gonna probably throw in my in my daily mix, which I'm always eating: cashews, almonds, 
and pumpkin seeds, probably my top three nuts that I'll consume. I love cashews. Yeah, cashews. I think cashews are making a comeback, or I just like saying that all the time on cashews the podcast. Cashews are making a comeback. <laughs> I feel like maybe they never went out, but maybe they went out for me, but I just, I, I just something about cashews. Yeah, well, the cashews are great. They're creamy. They have that nice texture, which is especially great for kids. As nuts go, they're pretty high in iron. And that's just an important, um, they became a big part of our life, actually, when my wife was uh, breastfeeding. And breast milk doesn't have a ton of iron in it. And, and we wanted to expose our kids to nuts pretty early. So we started, like, like, uh, like little like little primitive people, like, chewing up the nuts and, like, you know, uh, feeding them into our kids' mouths. And, sure. and um, yeah, it's been, uh, cash has been a big part of our life. Um, lots <laughs> of iron and, and just that notion of, okay, you know, early foods you want to add into a kid's life, you want them to make their, sure there's a lot of iron. Actually, they say that if iron deficiency on the planet Earth was really fully treated, our IQ, planetary IQ, would go up by nine points. Wow. Yeah, like 9% smarter planet. That would be good. More cashews. More cashews. You heard it here. Pump- and he's a doctor. And pumpkin seeds, I think, are great because just... So what Kale taught me about food, besides that it can take off, was around nutrient density, uh, around flexibility... So one of the reasons I like those nuts is I do a lot of things with them. The pumpkin seeds I can I'll throw in my smoothie in the morning. I'll throw in my omelet in the morning. I'll throw in my kale salad. I'll throw in my soup. I just I'll, I'll eat a handful in the middle of the day between patients. I just like the versatility that um, the nuts and the seeds have, and then um, and just how available and inexpensive they tend to be. And so, what are your other great foods and categories? You mentioned eggs. I'm assuming you said omelet. I'm assuming eggs. I like eggs. I'm a big fan of eggs. I know those can be a controversial food, but uh, I think they're a great source of protein, especially as people are looking at less um, sort of a lot of folks think about less meat and think about the environmental impact of their food. I mean, I just think eggs are a really interesting uh, food. Great protein source. Nice relationship with the animal. We've got chickens on our farm um uh great source of b vitamins if you think about it everything you need to make a brain cell is inside the egg because a little baby chicken comes out of it and Mm. nothing else goes in and so i look at that and i think chicken brain cells not that different than a human brain cell so all the components are in there and so you know eggs eggs uh, become a nice uh nice source of protein and and again a very versatile food very simple food very low calorie food so something i would like to see uh, patients especially patients skipping breakfast i'll get them on a couple eggs in the morning other food categories i like i like the fermented foods i just think the microbiome science is really interesting it's just a really very um provocative, interesting study coming out. They, they looked at individuals hospitalized with mania, so that gets you a bipolar disorder diagnosis. And they gave everybody um, you know, treatment as usual, but they split, uh, they did a randomized trial and gave a group uh, a, a probiotic. And they found that among individuals who had some high inflammatory blood levels, they decreased the rate of hospitalization by 90% over the next Nine six zero? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> over the next six months. So, so that just that, and there was also there was a trial um, in the fall, last fall, about a probiotic being used to treat clinical depression. So, you know, I, I, when we look at the microbiome, we look at how inflammation and how the immune system is is certainly involved in a lot of people's depression. When we look at how um, the nervous system and the immune system are always kind of cross-talking, uh, the microbiome is is an exciting new area in terms of thinking about how can we impact our patient's health. How can we have other interventions, and um, how can how diet directly re- relates to to brain health? Because you can't have a healthy gut without a healthy brain. So I'm going to ask you about brain health and mental health and the similarities and the differences. Before we go there, just any other any other foods we want to include in the, in the list? 
Well, I think we should say olive oil, just because one of the big problems I see people having is just not knowing what fats to cook with and getting kind of confused and seeing all kinds of new fats come on them. And just like olive oil is, uh, I probably go through. I feel through. like everyone can agree on olive oil, except I, the Esselstyns. So. The Esselstyns do not like olive I oil. Know. I, 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 they, I, I wish I, I wish we could agree on more. I feel like um, somehow it's great. It challenges the public to really find your own path. And sometimes I think it's just confusing because you listen to one doctor say something, another health expert say something else, and it just gets kind of confusing. But... I like the olive oil. I think fats are um, overall a good thing for people, something we've always eaten. And uh, Yeah, so like were you on, uh, you know, avocados, the other controversial oils, coconut oil, and just fats in general, like so, intermittent fasting, keto, all those things are sort of connected in the, this new world of fat. I like fats better than carbs. I don't, um, I think that most folks are on the, uh, you know, same page that carbohydrates and simple starches and simple carbs are kind of evil. I do like to point out that the body runs on sugar and that brain cells run on glucose. And, and there's a way that, you know, when we demonize words like sugar and carbohydrate, kind of like we demonize fat and demonize cholesterol, it kind of loses the nuance of the science and loses the nuance of our bodies. And so uh, it, it I see a lot of um, same way that politically we've polarized. It feels like somehow um, nutritionally and culturally, there's a lot of polarization. There's not a lot of people appreciating one another and our differences and the differences in our diet and the fact that you know some some, some folks. Um, I, I agree. This is why we have multiple multiple guests here on the podcast right. with all different viewpoints. It's important. It, We're all individuals. It, we are all individuals, and, and, and everybody finds a path to health, I hope, eventually. Um, I, I think that the intermittent fasting and the ketogenic movement has been very interesting because, first of all, it, it's challenged the notion that cardiology gave us around cholesterol and fat leading to heart disease. And I just think that's a really important um, topic in terms of public health. I was really influenced by the early books by Gary Taubes and then by Peter Atia, who's just a really big, he's a machine. He just a, he's a <laughs> big big brain. Um, I don't, he's you know I don't have a lot of my heroes who are like my age, but he's definitely one of these people who's like hero status of just really clear thinking and um, looking at the math of things in a way that a lot of people in healthcare. I love that he does all those tests on himself too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's uh, he he's he's it's like a, Tim Ferriss. He's like if Tim Ferriss were a doctor. Yeah, I think he and Tim are buddies. And are. I, was, I was thinking, like, that's the coolest club in, like, wellness, right? Hanging out with those guys. Um, so, uh, but there's a lot of interesting science coming out around how things like fasting and intermittent fasting affect brain and brain health. Um, certainly in the, in the Alzheimer's and dementia world, there's a, you know, a lot of buzz around, okay, if you've got a lot of Alzheimer's risk, what happens if you cut your carbohydrate intake down below 60 grams of carbs a day? Um, I think intermittent fasting is really, I would say that's probably how I eat without thinking about it. I've just, I find myself a lot of days, I'm really in a great spot, great flow, and I'll have a coffee and not a lot of food for a little while, not, and, and be in a good state. Um, I think the idea, of, one of the ideas I like about fasting is it helps people have a different relationship with hunger, that that we've, we're very, um, you know, I, I, I am very much for people eating when they're hungry, but it feels like our relationship with hunger is really, it's gotten lost. That when we're hungry, we have to eat. And, and that, especially that kind of really nagging, carb craving, gnawing hunger that people get these days. Three o'clock. Yeah. Just, it, it, what happens if you sit with that? I mean, sometimes when I'll get into a hungry spot, I, I remember that, you know, you've got enough calories stored in your body for the next 30 days. 
And, and so, you know, for the next hour, can I sit with this feeling and can I understand something about it? And uh, just not always responding to the notion, because so many people just become very emotional eaters. The way they deal with stress, the way they deal with emotional pain, the way they deal with conflict is through a lot of food and, and oftentimes accompanied by a lot of alcohol. And I'm fine with food and alcohol. I like those things. But I, I just think us um, sitting in with our relationships with those things um, and is just an important kind of reckoning or, or accounting to take on a regular basis. So you mentioned alcohol, move to like what I'll call like the fun category, you know, gluten, sugar, dairy, alcohol. I mean, I don't, what do I think? I guess I've come to the realization pretty much that I think alcohol is just bad. And, and, and I say that being a person who likes uh, to have an occasional drink, I like the IPA craze, um, uh, but but I don't really think I've seen too many examples of alcohol having a good effect on people's life. It certainly is, is a social lubricant. It's certainly something, you know, uh, when folks sit around and have a drink and really deeply connect. But I don't feel like I hear as much of that happening. I feel like what I increasingly hear happening from the the folks that I treat, and especially the kids in college, is just a, a kind of mindless level of intake, kind of on autopilot. And, and so that that's concerning just from the, um, you know, it feels like on the one hand, there's this big complaint and concern about meds and depression and all this. And on the other hand, we have a culture that's binge drinking, just binge drinking, like, like, you know, binge drinking, not sleeping, not attending to their mental health. And, um, you know, your average primary care doctor has seven minutes. And when they ask you if you're not feeling well, you say you're depressed. So there, it's a very, um, so I'm not a huge fan of alcohol in that way. Um, I've just seen a lot of people get sober and it just really changed their lives for the sure. better. And, and I certainly notice when I don't drink, you know, it's just hard to argue. Uh, your, your head isn't clear. Your sleep isn't better. Your mood isn't better. I think the other ones, gluten, you know, I think gluten is really one of those things that's gotten, um, it's been turned into a demon. And, I, and I'm just, I'm from Indiana. I'm a little suspicious of that when people sensationalize things to the level of, you know, toxins. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, okay, so if um, gluten is such a toxin for the entire world, then why does the majority of the world get a fair number of calories from wheat? I had to explain that. And so you, certainly we can argue that um, the way people are consuming uh, glutinous containing food this is really it's awful and not healthy but it's kind of like where we blame the meat I'm like i don't think that's the issue i think the issue is gluttony and um really bad quality meat and meat focus and we can blame the gluten like i love bread love my sandwiches um uh i think it's fun to bake i like bagels and and i think the idea that those are toxic i think where it really um undermines people's uh, undermines people's sort of notion of how we use health advice is a lot of folks will eat gluten and have no problem. So right. certainly folks with celiac disease, I think everybody knows that these days, that gluten is a poison. The problem is when you take 1% of the population and you give them a disorder, everyone's heard that miracle story. Oh my gosh, did you hear about so-and-so? They stopped eating gluten and their health totally changed. And I've seen that story and I've prescribed gluten-free diets and, 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 and it really works when you have gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. I've also seen people who have just lived a miserable existence eating no sugar, no dairy, no gluten, not, not much of anything, um, and just had their depression completely untreated. And after years on this diet of being pretty chronically suicidal, finally get into a good psychotherapy or they get onto a little medication or something like St. John's Wort, 
and their life's just back to where it used to be. So it's where I get concerned that folks make it all about this one nutrient, the silver bullet solution that Americans love, and I just think is misleading. Well, well, it's interesting for what you do, too, because I think mentally that's not necessarily a good thing. When you put so much pressure on a specific method for an outcome, that can be difficult to handle mentally if you're struggling there. Yeah, and, and if that's if that one thing is the secret to your happiness, and look for folks with celiac disease, that's true. Yeah, about it is, but, right? but for the average, for per- the average person, no. I mean, if think one of the big mistakes I see in practice—not mistakes, but one of the kind of I would say corrections of it when I meet people and I'm, I'm spending some time with them in psychotherapy of how they look for things to have like one answer. And, well, that's and, what everyone wants. Well, they want that one answer. Just tell me what to do, yeah. Doctor Ramsey. No, my, my favorite supervisor. So what should I eat? I got my shopping right, list. Right, I, right. Just tell me what to do. And. One of my favorite supervisors talked about a multimodal determination with this idea that what we feel comes from a lot of different places, a lot of different inputs. And so when we make it just about one thing, first of all, I think that loses the richness of our life. Am I happy because of my marriage or my kids or my job or my books or hanging out here with you or living you know, It's definitely us. Or definitely us right here, here right with now, you. Doing, doing the horrible, podcast, right? yeah. It's like lots of things go into what makes us content and happy. And, and nutrition is a huge part of that and essential for it. But it's not the only piece of it. Sure. So I always, I always, I, I love, I, I reference this quote a lot, but to me it just says it all, eat food, not too much, most, you know, mostly plants, make a pollen. It's kind of like your philosophy, I'd say, right? I mean, I think everybody loves those, yeah. that philosophy. But it's I think of, that's the way to really live. And there's a lot of great, you know, if you go down, I, I always ask these questions. I think it's super interesting. You know, meat, no meat, dairy, gluten, all that stuff. Like, right. But at the end of the day, it's it's... I think where everyone agrees, all the common ground between all the different opinion, p- opinions out there from a lot of very smart people, it's plant-heavy diet, you know, probably not so much meat, don't overkill it, um, but, you know, have good quality meat, good quality seafood, enjoy breaking bread, well, you know, I always say if you're going to do it, like have great bread. If you're going to eat the bread, saying, enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, like have that. a donut, like if you're going to have a donut, have the best donut in the world. Don't just eat the shitty donuts. Like, go for the really good. Make it a treat. And, like, the perception, I always thought, someone told me once, it's like, people will say, cheat. What about treat? Just think about what you were saying to yourself mentally. Cheat versus treat. Oh, I like that. I I don't really like the cheat days or that way. I I like treat. Well, and I've also never... It's like punishment. Well, I've never wanted to advise anybody to be a cheater. And I I don't... (laughs) You know, that's that's not a value that I think is good for us to think about in health, that, you know, somehow... And what is that? Like you're healthy and then you cheat on being healthy. And, and it has this notion that enjoying food is unhealthy, that eating a donut is unhealthy. And, and sure, like a donut is not a healthy food, but um, can that be something that is part of a healthy lifestyle? Sure. I mean, it, right. it, 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 it just, um, yeah. So go back. So you talked about brain health and mental health and, and just maybe distinguish what that means for people and the differences and, and how you, and how you look at that. So I've decided those aren't different things anymore. And that if we're talking about mental health, we're talking about brain health and that when we make those different things, we, in a kind of strange way, create a lot of stigma because we make it sound like mental health symptoms, like, like depression, anxiety, um, uh, psychosis, that, that those come from someplace other than the brain. And, and so I think about mental health as really, it's, it's firmly in a foundation of brain health. And 
then certainly on top of that is a, is a complex layer of our psychology and our dynamics, where we came from, who we are, how we relate to individuals. But I, I really increasingly think, I think about mental health as brain health, and that when I'm talking about your mental health and your depression, on some level, I'm thinking about your brain cells. It's not just cognitive decline over here, anxiety over there. Nope, nope. They're all, those are all brain phenomena. And, and what I like about that, as opposed to calling it mental health, is like mental health or mental illness. That's something that those other people have, right? We don't have that, Jason. Not, but brain health, we all have brains. Mm-hmm. And, and we all need to think about how to care for it. Just like we, you know, we ask people how do they care for their heart or how do they care for their lungs. Right? They have a couple ideas. We ask folks how to care for their brain, you know, like Sudoku. <laughs> what, what do you do to care for your brain? What do you do, more importantly, to care for your emotional health? And so I like to start with that notion of brain health and then think about what skills and challenges people are individually facing and then what skills they need to overcome those. So when someone comes to see you, how do you decide, okay, medication there, a lot of talk therapy there, food there, lifestyle there. How do you think about that? And then does someone ever, I always wonder with psychiatry, do you ever walk in and be like, oh, I can do this in like three sessions? Or like, I have no idea how long this is going to take or if I'm ever going to be help, to help this person. Well, I know there's two separate questions those there. Are two but, but, those, I mean, the first question is, that's a really easy one because I don't think it's my choice. It's not my job to decide whether someone takes meds or not. That's somebody's choice. It's my job to be their partner in that decision. And so I see people who hate meds. They don't want to be part of that. And as a physician, I might have my opinion of what I think would work best, and I'll tell them, hey, in my experience with these symptoms, a little bit of Zoloft or Prozac really can help, or at least a trial to see whether that helps is a good idea right now. Um, I think it's certainly when people have more severe symptoms, certainly when folks have... um, you know, significant disruptions in their function from psychosis, from mania, um, anxiety that prevents them from leaving the house, you know, um, depression where they're feeling very you know, suicidal and non-functional. You know, those are individuals that I'm certainly going to want them to understand the, the benefits of medications and, uh, and as much as I can about what the, where their concerns come from. Um, if people refuse or don't want to take those you know there's some notion that what then they're not in treatment and that's just not how i was raised as a doctor when somebody you and somebody agree that you're going to be in a treatment together um you do your best to do that under the person's values and and whatever those are and so um I, i certainly think there's also a lot of confusion about meds right because there's this way that we we treat the med whether it's good or bad um, like lithium is a good example, right? That like gives people the chills, lithium. Whereas like lithium is right next to magnesium on the periodic table. And you say magnesium and people are like cheering, like, oh, I take that every night. I love magnesium. But if you say like, oh, I take a little lithium for my mood. And, you know, there's a lot of anti-dimension data. They're like, oh, lithium's serious. And I just think it's the kind of like molecular discrimination almost. Molecular discrimination. No, I agree. Look, I think there are some people who say that and there's some well-known doctors who, who just say, like, you know, I don't prescribe. I don't think anyone should be on medication. And I, I, I look, I, I disagree. Yeah, I don't respect <laughs> those people anymore. I, I don't. I think, well, I, I've also, lot to me, it's like I, I've known people who've died. I've known yeah, people who lost family like, members. And, and, like, that's not, people need medication. Medication, you know, it's not evil. 
It's not evil. It's, it's not really a solution for everyone and no. all the time. And some and some people say medication's a bridge for some people. Well, I also would challenge the people who hate meds that when it works, which definitely works, let's just say it works for half people. It works probably more than that. Think about something like Prozac. I want you to tell me another treatment that costs $60 a year that can cure or treat depression. There's not, there's not any. I mean, the, that, right. that's more than one session with anybody. And so... It, 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 I think part of what's happened with the medication argument is there's um, there's a lot of vitriol. There certainly are people who have had a lot of bad experiences. There's a lot of polypharmacy and mismanagement. There's a lot of people slinging scripts. Um, yep. And there are a lot of patients who then have variable experiences. And because of stigma, we don't hear from the folks who do really well on meds. And, and I think that's changing. It seems like that's changing. But what we hear from most often and most loudly are the people who have bad experiences on meds. And so that just creates this bias that sure. they really don't work. And when you look in the data carefully, they certainly don't work for everybody. But, right, like know, anything. Yeah. Neither neither does you know right. neither, wild salmon. Right, Doesn't, there's some you know. Neither does yoga. Right, right. right. <laughs> and so it, it's uh, it's where I hope what uh, is going to happen is that we will decide we are going to have respect for one another's individual journey. And respect that some people need different things than we do. I think that's the one thing I've learned as a psychiatrist is you sit with hundreds of people who are different than you are. You begin to appreciate uh, and really, really appreciate the, the like wonderful nuance in, in us. And, and that if we really can step outside that, um, oh, that notion that our own values are being judged because someone is different, as opposed to just, you know, sure. someone's different than we are. Well, I think wellness is religion for a lot of people. And I get it. Like, something happens, it changes your life, and then it's like, this is it. I'm a new person, and I'm, I'm like, and, and when that's challenged, you can challenge someone's identity, and it becomes, I, I understand. I felt that way. Yeah, I remember sure. feeling that when I first came out saying, you know, looking at kind of the vegan and vegetarian data and getting concerned about B12 deficiency and just getting, I'm seeing a lot of, like, women and pregnant women go on vegan diets for their healthy babies, and that's just not... That's just bad in all ways. And, um, and it just, the amount of vitriol is where just the amount of anger and the amount of, and the amount of anger that I had, you know, wanting to defend my opinion. And I just really didn't like that at all. I don't like being in that state with people (laughs) and I don't like, um, feeling like it's my job to convince folks. Sure. I think it's my job to help, help translate the science and help people find a path where they feel good about their mental health and their food. Well, something I say a lot and we say here at my buddy green is the future is Eastern and Western. Neither is perfect. Western is not perfect, but it saves lives. Same with Eastern. That's a combination of both and you need both. Yep. I mean, absolutely. And so you mentioned, so I loved your line, like lithium sits next to magnesium. So I segue to supplements, you know, obviously, a lot of people take supplements who are listening. People like when, like, which supplements are you a fan of? Uh, just in ter- terms of like ingredients, like you mentioned ginkgo earlier. Like, what? So, I'm, where's I'm, the science? So, I'm sort of a fan of no supplements. I got to be honest. I, I, I kind of. Well, I know you are too. I, at this, at this point, <laughs> both. I, I, you're I a real food guy. I'm a real food guy. I mean, I really, I, I kind of am a little stubborn to like. I don't even take any supplements. Occasionally, I'll take something, but I try. Uh, 
So I think supplements are really helpful if you have a medical condition where you have a deficiency, if you have a dysfunction in your bowel, if you have something like uh, Well, you mentioned like probiotic or, for gut, and then you mentioned magnesium for sleep, and the next one everyone's taking is CBD for anxiety. So I'm just oh curious goodness. what you... Everybody's taking CBD. I love, because based on all that great CBD science, right? Um, it's, uh, I had somebody come up to me at a conference recently and be like, can we get all the kids off these toxic drugs and give them CBD oil? <laughs> And I was just thinking, like, <laughs> wow, you know, like, I didn't know when all the drugs got toxic. And, like, I was when I learned that Prozac is one of the most powerful cerebral anti-inflammatories. It's like ibuprofen for the brain. Really? Yeah. But I nobody, didn't know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> and, and everyone's, like, all thrilled about you know. And, and CBD actually looks very interesting in a couple of clinical trials. I don't mean to make light of it. Um, there's a really powerful trial in schizophrenia of, a very, of like, 1,000 milligrams twice a day of CBD. Much That's higher a than, lot it's of mu- CBD. It's much higher than anybody's <laughs> taking. But it showed, it showed some uh-huh. interesting um, and, and, and positive effects in uh, individuals with schizophrenia. So... Uh, what I think about supplements is that people are oftentimes really, really susceptible to the placebo effect. Sure. And so anytime we try something, it's funny, when because I prescribe both supplements and, and vitamins and minerals, and, and I also prescribe meds, I've sort of been telling people recently, what, what seems to happen is you give someone a medication over the next six weeks, everything that goes wrong in their life is because of the medicine. Like every bad feeling, like any bad thing that happens, it's like, oh, it's got to be the med. If you put somebody on a supplement, every single good thing that happens over the next six weeks is because of the supplement. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it feels so good, the B12 shot. And so there's this you know, implicit bias in well, this. Well, let me ask you then, what do you, I agree, but what, what do you prescribe sometimes to people? So if I see non-fish eaters who have moon disorders, I will give them a higher dose omega-3 supplement. The data on that's pretty mixed. So the, um, we're talking about like most of the studies show about two grams of fish oil, which is about a teaspoon of fish oil. So much more than you get in most fish oil pills. Um, I like, um, what else do I like? I like to give people, I guess other sort of the natural antidepressant supplement that, that has most data is St. John's wort. Um, about 900 milligrams of St. John's wort does pretty well in clinical trials. Um, most recent Cochrane report, which is a sort of institute that looks at all of the data. Uh, they concluded that St. John's wort has the same efficacy as antidepressants with fewer side effects. You know, whether that's totally true or not, it's the bigger thing. Is it's interesting. It, it's, it's interesting. It's an option, and there's clinical data supported as something that, you know, individuals want to consider. Um, I uh, I think magnesium certainly can be helpful at sleep, certainly can be helpful for some folks with anxiety. There's a little bit of data about it for depression. It and zinc have both a little data supplementing, helping with depression. Um, and, and usually all those trials are augmenting an antidepressant. So there, there's some data that if you give vitamin B9 folate or vitamin B12 or zinc or magnesium with an antidepressant, the, the, those medicines do a little bit better. Um, vitamin D, I mean, you know, the, both the vitamin D and fish oil, part of what's happening is there's just so much... Um, controversy because of uh, what's pushing the kind of recommendations of what people should get. So everyone became vitamin D deficient in America when they raised the vitamin D, you know, lower, lower limit of normal. Um, and, and I think we all just saw that big piece of news coming out saying yeah. like, you know, vitamin D just doesn't really look like it does much. What I think is very clear is you should have a normal level of vitamin D. Right. And um, should you take you know, large, large doses of it, it doesn't seem like that's clear. It's, it's kind of similar with the fish oil. The data is not as conclusive as you would, conclusive as you would hope. Um, and, but there's, a, there's certainly a signal that um, 
uh, certainly for depression, you get a small, I'd say, uh, statistically significant but clinically insignificant increase. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, uh, you mentioned a couple studies in science. Uh, the, the one that I thought was most fascinating was the probiotic one. Um, what is the new interesting science where maybe it's even early where you're saying like, Oh, that's interesting. Let's wait and see what develops yeah, there. I mean, I think it's all early science. I think, I think the, there's a good body of data. There was just a meta analysis in nature by, um, one of my colleagues, Felice Jacka, who's really one of the leaders in, in nutritional psychiatry. And, and this meta analysis looked at all of the observational studies around depression and, um, and diet and, and finds a, you know, a significant, what, 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 um, common sense maybe tells us, but what the science supports is that more traditional diets made of whole foods, fewer processed foods, be that the Mediterranean diet or the Japanese diet, there tends to be a lower risk of depression, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50%. So significantly decreased rates. The, the, the new science that's coming out of these clinical trials where people are actually now doing things like taking a population that has depression and is in clinical treatment and giving them a Mediterranean style diet cooking class and, and maybe giving them some olive oil and really encouraging them to start eating more nuts and beans and more seafood and giving them recipes and really engaging them. This is what we do in the Brain Food Clinic, really, where we just really try and engage people around their food, helping them with ideas, with recipes, with some planning, um, setting small goals. And uh, those trials, have, uh, there have been two of them now, the SMILES trial and the Healthy Med trial. And, and they both had uh, good, significant findings that they could help individuals with depression. So that's exciting. Mm. So what are some of the things that people are doing that may not be the best for them in terms of their mental health, but they probably don't realize. Could be anything, food, lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, I think the part that we're all struggling with is the phone and the screen. I think that that is really destructive to mental health in a lot of ways. And, and we talk a lot about technology and digital detox and people go off Instagram for 36 hours. But I've really just been struck by um, how much our patterns of loving one another have changed and how much our, our patterns of how we emotionally resonate with people change. I mean, myself included, you know, I'll post something on Instagram and I'm like anyone else, you know, you, you have that moment in that, you know, hoping it does well and wondering why it did well. And, um, and so there's something about that that's creative and that's fun. And there's something about that, that, that really pulls me out of what I'm being on my farm with my kids and my wife, or, um, you know, being in the midst of, of trying to write something really thoughtful. So, um, so, but I think most people know that. I guess the, the destructive thing that I think people are doing with their health is fetishism. Is I think that there's this, there's that, that, that fantastical search for this silver bullet solution to get to this healthy place. And this almost, it almost is this attitude that we're not healthy, resilient people. And that really folks are in awful, awful shape. And, and so there's something about when we begin to see all of the, the products and the supplements and all that stuff that's getting pushed, I just get concerned. I see people spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a lot of stuff without a lot of evidence that it works and not engaging in kind of those basics. You know, good, good. I saw a patient this morning and she was really having a hard time with her energy. And she's on some meds and she's on a stimulant. She's in the middle of graduate school and it's the winter and she just had a breakup. And there's, you know, lots of factors, but when it kind of comes right down to it, she's um, really not eating well. 
like really not well from the vending machine. She's on uh, up with Netflix until like one or two a.m. every night, and and so you can see how psychiatry gets in a little trouble. That we want to fix that problem, and so oh, do we give a little more stimulant, or do we give her something to help her sleep? Or, but uh, to get folks really engaged with lifestyle changes, you know, can be challenging. And then there's, I think, maybe a little misunderstood part of medicine in general, which is it all sounds great, but when you actually treat patients and you sit with individuals who aren't motivated or interested in changing, and you're on the line for their health outcome, you make decisions that sometimes people might not appreciate, because you know, it sounds great, like eat better, move more, sleep more. You know, you start treating a busy CEO who's flying all over the world, who you know has a family and has a substance abuse issue, and um, you know, and it's not, it's not as simple as just you know, eat more and move more. Um, and so I, I think those are kind of my, you know, the concerns I have around fetishism, around how the wellness community promotes stigma, which mm-hmm. I hear a lot. A lot of my patients, you put them on whatever, Zoloft, Prozac, and, you know, it's just torture. The next week, they're, oh, my gosh, you, said, you need something that strong? <laughs> like, oh, ha- have you tried yoga? Do you want to come to my studio with me? Like, oh, you know, my cousin was on that. Her son actually was on it, too, and really bad, bad medicine. And, like, nobody says, like, oh, What's going on with you? Right. How are you doing? How are you doing? How can I help? Yeah. Right. Neutral questions. Like, let me understand what's going on with you. There's all this presumption, and I'd even call it like arrogance that people seem to have about mental health. That like it's something that we all get to comment about one another, as opposed to, I would say, being witness of and be in partnership with. So what are the right questions to ask? If someone's listening and a loved one, someone they know may not be doing so well, and they, and they, how do you ask the right question? So what, I, what should you not say? Well, I mean, let's just try. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I would say that there's not a lot you shouldn't say as long as you're not being mean. <laughs> I think good, that, good, good life advice. I think that one <laughs> thing that people have a hard time with mental health is focusing on outcome and not on process. The idea that, that you need to have a conversation and do something as opposed to you need to be with someone and you need to listen to them and you need to try and understand and help them understand just where they are. Like one of the best pieces of supervision I got, another one was um, and the, the trick of being a therapist is not tell people things. It's to get people to say things to themselves. And so um, I, I'm all for the subtle intervention. The number one thing is just time. If you're worried about somebody, you don't say like, hey, I'm really worried about you. Say like, hey, let's get dinner. Why? I want to spend some time with you. And then hear what's going on. You probably don't have to. If you're hanging out with somebody who's not doing well and they care about you and you care about them, you don't have to ask any questions. I sit down in sessions. I say, hey, welcome back. People start talking. It's great. <laughs> so uh, the questions that I think are important eventually to ask is uh, the ones that are always on the top of my mind as a psychiatrist, especially when I'm concerned. It's some of the basics. I ask about sleep. It's really dangerous when people are having mental health problems and they're not sleeping. It's one of the number one risk factors for completed suicide, lack of sleep. If I'm really worried about somebody's mental health, um, I'm also going to ask directly about um, thoughts of self-harm in, in a very specific way because the data tells us, you know, ask people like, hey, you feel safe? That doesn't help. You ask people like, hey, you know, you're having some scary thoughts? It doesn't really help. You say, hey, are you having some thoughts about killing yourself? That's a, that's a different type of thought and a different type of risk factor, and people usually will respond to that in a little bit of a different way. And also, again, in that it's a hard thing if you're not a professional, but in that... If people answering that question honestly is going to lead to a lot of anxiety and shock, 
they're usually not going to be forthcoming, as opposed to lots of folks who are having depression have suicidal thoughts. It's not an uncommon thing. It doesn't mean they're going to act on it, but the most dangerous thing is silence. Um, and then I think asking about stuff besides suicide, because the minute that people feel like down or anxious, everyone starts getting like really nervous about suicide and about like the worst case scenario. And I worry about those things as a doc all the time. I got a call this morning, I like jumped because it was like the iPhone, it came up somebody's parents instead of them. <laughs> I was like, oh no, it's gonna, but so I appreciate being anxious around the outcome, but I think being with people and where they are, um, um, asking them what they're doing or uh, to, to um, improve their situation or what you can do, um, engaging them socially, you know, especially for depression, the, the number one, one of the number one problems, just the isolation, just, sure. just getting together and being social and doing things just helps. And what are the top three things that anyone can do who's just a little down, maybe a little anxious, a little stressed, like winter's coming, shorter days, I'm not feeling as, yeah, as so, good as I should be mentally. What, 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 can, what top three things they can do to okay. feel better? I, I was feeling that way this weekend. So let me tell you the top three things I did, Jason. Like it's starting to snow here. And, starts, and, and I'm walking over here. That made me really happy. I love the snow. So, uh, but yeah, I was dumping snow on the way over here, which was lovely. First snow of the year. Um, I think when people are struggling their mood, I, uh, I go over my basics, which is, you know, somebody's in a bad mood and it's 2 p.m. and they haven't eaten anything. I was like, all right, it's amateur hour. Like, eat something. <laughs> right? That's why you're not feeling well. If somebody is, but what you're talking about, if somebody's noticed their mood is slipping slowly, I think the first is to um, be really upfront about that. Be upfront about somebody you care about. Um, if, if you're engaged in any treatment, certainly talk about it. If you haven't been in any treatment and it's something that you recognize has been creeping up and you haven't been attending to, it's one of these interesting things that people don't use the mental health care system. Like, just go get a consult. Like, if you're worried about whether you're getting depressed or not or how severe it might be or whether you should do something, you can sit and wonder and you can Google about it or you can come talk to a mental health professional like me and in an hour I'm going to say, like, hey, this is what I think this is, and here are your treatment options. It doesn't mean you've signed up for anything. Just right. like those are your options. Um, the things that I see really disturb people's moods tend to be alcohol consumption, really, really bad sleep hygiene, and just like bad sleep hygiene basics. Like folks just never getting eight hours of sleep. Folks sleeping with the TV on, going to bed with the TV on, always having the lights on. No Watch, scent. just doing binging on House of Cards before yeah, going to bed. Yeah, we've all done it. I'm not going to say I haven't, but it's just really, um, it's, it, it's, I was talking to a patient today and I was thinking, gosh, you know, it was really different because when I was in medical school, like one day a week we'd go watch ER. And there wasn't, we didn't have cell phones. There wasn't like, you know, there was no screen in the bed. It was kind of like tacky to have a TV in your bedroom back then. And now it's like, we've got like multiple TVs in our, we've got our screens. So what are your sleep basics? So one of them is. Oh, so lights down. Yep. Like that's the one that people miss. It's like uh, light, especially if you have kids, sun goes down, light goes, lights go off. Minimal light in your house. As soon as the sun goes down, really minimal to no screen. Um, you know, there are work emergencies we all have to deal with, but to really try and minimize those. I think that's also tough because a lot of us, I'm this way, you get kind of in a groove and you're writing and it's 11 and, you know, it's some of the most creative time a lot of us have. So that can be tough. But um, to really try and limit limit uh, those uh, external sources of light. Um, good bedroom. I mean, people really don't kind of take good care of their bedrooms in a certain way of really limiting light, limiting noise. Um, noise machines can be very helpful. Uh, some folks do really well with like a dawn awakening light, that kind of dawn simulator. Um, 
Temperature cooler. Yeah, I mean temperature. That helps. I, yeah, I that's that, my Frank Lipman hack. I know. I mean, I, I like the cooler temperature. Uh, I like that, like snugly under the <laughs> under the covers in the cool air. Um, I, you know, I, and I think for a lot of folks, it's also that settling themselves down. That a lot of times, people, especially busy people, they settle their bodies down. They take a shower, maybe they do some stretching, and then their mind starts buzzing, and they get this like little, almost like cortisol spike around like ten. And then I like, can't go to sleep. So I think recognizing your body's natural patterns and, and really trying to commit to a reasonable bedtime. I went to bed at 9.30 last night. It was amazing. Um, another trick I think that helps uh, people is the same, same wake time. So after I've had yep. kids, I wake up at pretty much without an alarm, 6 a.m. every morning. And, and it doesn't matter when I go to bed. And because of that, really, when I go to bed dictates my sleep time. And... Um, so those would be those would be. I like a nice cup of chamomile tea sometimes. I think that's a nice Ruskell tap uh, tea. And uh, oh, and then there's the top sleep thing that people just never say. But like, what is the best thing for putting people to sleep, Jason? Sex. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah. It's like everybody knows it, but like people uh, get all I don't know worked up and tense, and they start looking for all the different sleep supplements. And it's like, look, take care of yourself or take care of your partner. You'll probably <laughs> fall asleep. So last question, what do you think the future of wellness is? Or what do you want the future of wellness? Like, where do you think we're going? What, what, what's, what's the conversation you want to be having a year from now, three years from now? I can tell you, uh, I'm really focused on us continuing this mental health conversation, really explicitly talking about depression, talking about anxiety, talking about stigma. Um, that, that has me delighted, and I just want to keep, I, I want to keep uh, all of us to commit to keep pushing that conversation because that, that saves lives and it helps people access treatment. It helps us understand ourselves and our neighbors. I, I think the next thing that's happening in psychiatry is going to be how we understand how to use genetics better and epigenetics better in terms of our treatments. We, we have um, just there's been an explosion of this and there's really not a lot of utility right now. So as a psychiatrist, I can send some genetic tests and, you know, a lot of there's a lot of opinions about them, but the bottom line is there's just not a lot you can do with that te uh, those tests now. You you can dial in a little bit better, um, maybe which meds to give based on how people process meds, um, but that's going to change. And I think that's going to I think three years from now, we'll be having a conversation. Um, I hope about how we can more accurately diagnose um, things like depression, which you know we call it one thing. But people get depressed for all kinds of reasons, from they're not eating right to, you know, their heart is broken to they have something, we, you know, bad inflammatory condition to, um, you know, they, they, they have kind of circuits in their brains that for whatever reasons developmentally didn't wire up quite right. And, and to, you know, having problems with their thyroid. I mean, there's a lot of different sure. reasons. So it would be nice for patients and for doctors alike for us to really be able to delineate when someone comes in. We do that for some stuff, right? We always scream folks for a thyroid and for anemia and for B12 deficiency in psychiatry. But I think more nuanced labs. So I was excited about that bipolar study that I mentioned earlier. There was a neuroinflammatory kind of panel. It was the first time I'd seen that kind of stuff being used. And, and, and that's... Um, it's exciting to that we can think in three years, can we move the conversation beyond these buzzwords of like you know, uh, inflammation and to real specificity about what is wrong with somebody when they're struggling with their mental health, then how can we really get them connected with the, uh, we call it precision psychiatry with the treatment that's going to work. That, that's what I hope for in the sure. next three years. I love it. Dr. Drew Ramsey, 
Thank you so much. Check out check out his books. Check out his revitalized talk from 2014. Check out everything this check man out my, does. Check out my e-course, Eat to Beat Depression. Yes. That, one's, that one's a fun one. I love it. Check out everything he does, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason.